Hey, this is David with Between Two Ravens, and I'm doing another solo episode today. This one's on the topic of divination and the I Ching. My goal for this episode is to explain the idea of divination using the I Ching as an example. You can read along in the associated blog post, and I'll have links to the sources that I'm citing in the show notes. The I Ching is also known as the Book of Changes, and it originates from China in mythical antiquity, over 3,000 years ago. The version that I'm looking at is the translation by Richard Wilhelm. He says that Confucianism and Taoism have common roots in the text of the I Ching. It is an ancient text on how to interpret 64 symbols known as hexagrams. The book has been called a magical book of spells by some, but this edition by Richard Wilhelm and the foreword by Carl Jung help to explain how this book of divination is more of a philosophy and an approach to understanding reality and the human mind. It is outside of our standard Western views of rationality and causal determinism, but I believe it is possible to understand the concept of divination rationally. It does not require supernatural belief. I'm bringing this topic to the Between Two Ravens podcast because of the potential parallels between divination using the I Ching and divination using runes. Uh, if you haven't yet, you can see episodes 7 and 9 on the topic of runes. There have been few examinations of what is occurring psychologically when someone is divining using the Norse runes, but Jung's interpretation of the divination process using the I Ching may be informative to what's happening in divination with runes as well. Reading runes is a less standardized process compared to the I Ching. The interpretations are unique to the individual person reading the runes, but I hope the theory of divination underlying runes may be informed by what has been examined by the Chinese within the I Ching for over 3,000 years. I hope a relatively rational exploration of a topic like divination doesn't take away from the significance of the practice. Rather, I hope it opens up the idea of divination to more people in our modern secular culture and to consider finding meaning in the process. I've mentioned on the show before that the idea of reading runes can be associated with satyr magic, a practice that's referred to in the myths and the sagas. And there was also historical documentation of the practice of reading runes going back to the year 100 by the Roman historian Tacitus in his study of the Germanic people. Reading runes is also a modern spirituality practice for some heathens or pagans or other believers in magic or what might be called New Age spirituality. There are numerous books you can buy and read on how to understand the runes and how to do rune readings as a process to divine some type of knowledge or wisdom. There is no universal agreement on how to read runes, to a large extent, the process was lost to history as pagans were persecuted by the Christian church throughout the Middle Ages. That's the risk with an oral tradition of mystical wisdom. It's only reserved for a select few who have the wisdom and the desire to learn. Modern authors have to reconstruct the process from fragments of history and mythology. Some of the authors I have read suggest that knowledge of nature, mythology, and archetypal images help to inform the process of interpreting and making meaning from the symbols and the runes. So this contrasts with the I Ching, where the text on learning to interpret the symbols is documented to trace back over 3,000 years. A simplified way to describe the process of divining using runes is to consider taking a bag of 24 runes carved on wood or bone or stones, and you put them in a bag and then you pull out three runes at random. What each rune means is important, and you, the reader, have to determine what each rune means, as well as the meaning of the relationship between the three runes. Then knowing yourself and your life situation, you have to determine what that must mean to you. 
The randomization process seems important. You could think of this as fate determining what message is presented to you, or you could choose to view it as purely random, uh, a chaos that your chaotic unconscious mind will attempt to map onto. And this is also related to Jung's idea of synchronicity, a meaningful coincidence. So yes, scientifically, it is technically just a coincidence what three runes you got, but can I find meaning in the coincidence? This is a practice I've been advocating throughout the podcast, studying myths to learn to practice symbolic thinking, the language of dreams, poetry, and the unconscious. It's a language which your unconscious mind speaks. So you can learn to communicate with these messages from your inner self, or you can ignore the messages until the unconscious directs your actions in a way that you can no longer ignore. I'm going to describe an example of divining using the I Ching, and then I'll come back to how this all might relate to the runes and to Norse mythology. So Carl Jung wrote a foreword to the version of the I Ching that was translated from Chinese to German by Richard Wilhelm, and then it was translated from German to English by C.F. Baines. The reason for a translation from German to English, rather than directly from the Chinese to the English, is that Wilhelm was such a scholar of both the Chinese language and the philosophical underpinnings of the I Ching. His version captures a unique understanding of the I Ching by a Westerner who was informed by his personal relationships with Chinese scholars who still had a connection to the traditions and the lineage of the ancient art. He learned from scholars who understood it as a living art rather than purely a reconstruction of an ancient technique. The images in the I Ching are related to Taoism, a spirituality that underlies Chinese medicine, the ideas of yin and yang as primal energies of dark and light, Another way to say that is as similar to the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. Um, so yin and yang can be divided into either four or five elements, depending on the theory. Um, so those would be fire, water, earth, and wind, or it might be fire, water, earth, metal, and wood. It depends on the theory, uh, whether there should be four or five. And these elements, they're symbols. So the way the yin and yang is considered a symbol for dark and light, cold and heat, the five elements would be more like the seasons, that spring, summer, fall, and winter are stages of relatively increasing or decreasing energy throughout the year. In the I Ching, there are 64 images called hexagrams, and they're made up of pairs of combining eight trigrams. Another way to think of this, a trigram is a series of three lines. So there's either three solid lines, uh, three dashed lines, or combinations of solid and dashed lines. And then when you have two trigrams combined, you have six lines. That's the hexagram. Uh, if you look at the blog post, there's an image of this uh, one of the trigrams. So the trigram symbols are, the, uh, the eight symbols are heaven, wind, fire, mountain, marsh, water, thunder, and ground. So I'm not going to go into explaining what all of those are, but if you think of that idea that there's four elements and they're kind of like the seasons, um, that's sort of a way to think of these being kind of combinations of those ideas. The hexagram symbols in the Book of Changes provide images of what is in the process of change when one trigram changes to another, or does it stay the same? When some people hear the word divination, I imagine they think of it as predicting the future. Divination in this system is not exactly predicting the future. It's not telling about a future or a present state, but rather it's giving an image of what is currently in the process of changing, the moment that is just getting ready to change. In Jung's analysis of what he calls the Chinese mind, which created the I Ching, the book is concerned with the chance aspects of reality. So rather than being concerned with cause and effect laws of nature, as we are in Western science, what about all of the variability around what happens on average? He says that's what the book is trying to make sense of. So rather than the question of what can be predicted by theoretical laws, the I Ching asks what actually is in this unique moment. 
In modern philosophy, this is known as phenomenology, looking to an individual or within oneself for what is, what their actual experience is, rather than just what a theory predicts. Using the I Ching is seeking wisdom as to the complex reality of the present moment that cannot be perfectly predicted by cause and effect. It's not a supernatural process or predicting the future that no one could know for certain, but is providing a canvas to project a non-rational intuition of the mind to say what is really important about what's happening right now. I hope that makes sense. It's certainly an abstract process. It's similar to this idea like dream interpretation. The dream shows up. It's hard to say why it shows up. And then you try to make sense of it for how it might actually be useful in your daily life. So to determine a trigram, a person flips three coins three times. Then they flip three coins another three times to get the second trigram. Looking up the pattern in the I Ching will give you a hexagram, one of the 64 symbols. It's an image and it has associated poetic imagery that goes back thousands of years. Um, in Wilhelm's version, it also then has uh, his interpretation of what it means, kind of translated into a Western phrasing. Whatever random pattern of heads and tails emerges once it is cast, that is the only image that actually happened. It is no longer an uncertain future, but rather the only combination that was fated to occur at that moment. But what does it mean? That is the question. Jung provided an example where he asks a question to the book, the I Ching. He admits that it is a strange thing to do to ask a question of a book, but he figures it's worth a shot. What does the book think about its present situation in the world? What he asked. And Jung receives the symbol of the cauldron. So Jung, speaking for the book, interprets that the cauldron's image of food and nourishment represents the book believing itself to be a source of spiritual nourishment. There are further details to the process of uh, divining when a less probable occurrence happens. So if you obtain three heads or three tails, then there is a change in the image. It gives you a slightly different interpretation than if you had the more probable event of having, say, two heads and one tail or one head and two tails. Young explains that it's not necessary to take a superstitious perspective and to believe that the book is truly talking. Rather, Young admits that his mind is making efforts to make meaning and find significance in the result he received. Young also says the ritual of using the I Ching should not be used too skeptically or frivolously. Approaching the process as meaningless would defeat the purpose and the potential of finding meaning in it. Um, one way to sort of, the way I think of that is, as I was saying earlier, you've if you flip six coins or you flip three coins six times, you're going to get a result, right? But then you're like, well, I got that result. I could have got any result. Let me do it again. Let me do it again, right? And you'll get all these different answers. At that point, you don't know what to make of any of them, right? You could pick and choose any one. Uh, it would kind of be like looking at the astrology horoscope and not knowing what your sign is. And you just find the one that uh, is your favorite, right? something like that. So my interpretation of Jung's take on the I Ching is that it's a good exercise for having an open mind an exercise in making meaning and finding meaning where there could be none. That's something I think we need more of in the world. He also says the responses from interpreting the I Ching may help a person to identify psychological blind spots, the things they are not wanting to recognize. I'd say that's similar to what happens in dream interpretation. If you're looking for what am I missing or what is, uh, what is it I'm not aware of. It's also an exercise like interpreting a dream or interpreting a myth. I've used the I Ching several times myself with some interesting results. Mostly, I've learned that I'm not very good at asking the right question. The first response I got was quite profound. The second attempt, I asked a question, which upon reflection seemed to be a stupid question. I received exactly the identical response for the 18 coin flips that I had in the first reading. And so I took this to mean that I was asking the wrong question. I needed to pay more attention to the first response. I find the question, 
what is it I need to be paying attention to right now, gives me room to find a meaningful interpretation. When I ask specific advice about a course of action, like should I do this, yes or no, it seems to give me an answer that says you're not asking the right question. So let's try a specific question. What is the direction for the podcast? So I um, had flipped some coins earlier, and so I got heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, 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 which is the more unusual occurrence. Heads, tails, 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 heads, tails, and tails, heads, heads. Okay, so then what does all of that mean? That means that you get a solid line, an open line, and a solid line, and that that one was all heads, which is significant. And then in the second trigram, there's an open line, an open line, and a solid line. The lower portion of the trigram is called Li, or clinging fire. The upper portion is called Ken, keeping still the mountain. So combined, these two trigrams is the hexagram number 22, which is Pi, or grace. And so here's a quote from the I Ching. This hexagram shows a fire that breaks out of the secret depths of the earth and blazing up, illuminates and beautifies the mountain. Grace, beauty of form, is necessary in any union if it is to be well-ordered and pleasing rather than disorganized and chaotic. So it sounds like the I Ching thinks well of our podcast, that the podcast has grown like spreading wildfire. It's certainly growing faster than Sean or I expected when we started our first episode, that we tried to illuminate or find wisdom in Norse mythology. It seems fitting as well. And if you look on the blog, I made a joke. I said that I'm going to predict that Sean's, if Sean was here, his joke would be a burning mountain. Great. Our show is a giant dumpster fire. But I think the, uh, the I Ching's interpretation is a little more generous than that. So the I Ching continues. Grace has success in small matters. It is favorable to undertake something. So this is particularly interesting. I started writing this episode and flipped those coins back in early May of 2022. And several opportunities have opened up for me that I'll talk about more in some future episodes. But it truly has come to pass that the podcast has gained a lot of attention and created opportunities both for Sean and myself that I only could have vaguely guessed at when I consulted the I Ching back in early May. Uh, the commentary in Richard Wilhelm's editing notes is that grace and beauty are necessary to make something truly great, but they're not the whole picture. Kind of like fire is very ephemeral. The strength, or as I would say, the fortitude, the dedication, the hard work, is really the substance or the mountain that makes a thing work. So that you need both. A way to say this in modern language is that you need both luck and hard work to achieve greatness. Either one alone is not enough. Another quote from the I Ching on this um, hexagram is, Fire at the foot of the mountain, the image of grace. Thus does the superior man proceed when clearing up current affairs, but he dare not decide controversial issues in this way. So my interpretation of Wilhelm's commentary, that the light of the fire brings attention to the situation, but fire burns out quickly, so that the determination, the seriousness, the hard work, is what's needed to capitalize on that attention. Or the way I would say that is, strike while the iron is hot. So the coin flips give the result of an image of a mountain with fire at the base, and it's interpreted by the book's author as beauty, or the grace needed to capitalize on an opportunity. It's also worth noting the effect of getting that solid line that was three heads in a row, which is a rarer occurrence than two heads, one tail. So this is called nine in the thirds place. It was the, the third result of flipping coins, or the third line in the hexagram. And it gives the reading, graceful and moist. Constant perseverance brings good fortune. And Wilhelm interprets this as, 
a very charming life situation. One is under the spell of grace. Grace can make things better as an adornment or a decoration, but we can also sink into passivity, thus the need to maintain perseverance, even given the good luck. So then it's up to me to interpret. How does this actually relate to my life and the question that I asked? Again, the question was, what is the direction for the podcast? So the podcast has been something quite fortunate for Sean and I. We both enjoy creating it. It's an opportunity to to appreciate beauty in old poetry. We have to strike a balance bringing different perspectives to the project. It is a bit grandiose to say that the uh, podcast is like a burning mountain or a shining beacon that brings attention and interest. Um, It does bring beauty to other people. It's certainly something that's needed in the world as we hope to arrive here at the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. So going forward, we have to strike a balance. It continues to take commitment, but also balance to not burn ourselves out. There's a great deal of material that we can talk about regarding Norse mythology. We can keep it going as long as it seems beneficial, and it will likely continue to be beneficial for us in return. That's how I take the, the reading. So how does a modern person make sense of the I Ching and this whole idea of divination? In some ways, it is a bit like astrology, where the answers given are vague enough that allows you to project the communication from your unconscious onto the image. It could be taken as unserious superstition and irrational thinking. There's also room for taking the process seriously as an opportunity to ask, what is my unconscious mind up to that I might not otherwise be willing to see? So I like the I Ching because half the process has already been done. I don't need to understand the symbols of the trigrams or of Norse runes uh, at the level of an expert or to understand how each interrelates. I just have to consult the scholars who claimed to truly understand. And then I take that image, I look it into my unconscious and decide what it might mean for me in the present moment. And so then what does this all have to do with Norse mythology? That I don't think I have sufficient wisdom or understanding of individual runes to try to create readings, either for myself or for other people, let alone identifying what does it mean once you put into combination any three given runes that show up in a particular order. But hopefully if you are somebody that's interested in divining the runes, my explanation of the I Ching will interest you and might inform your practice or enhance your ability to derive meaning from the runes. I've read quite a few books on it, and they all kind of agree that there are not people out there who understand the runes so well. They can tell you exactly how to interpret it the way the the Chinese sages would have with the I Ching. All of the modern readers of runes say that you really have to learn the runes, have your personal relationship with them, try to make sense of them. But basically that makes it a three-step process where for me the I Ching is kind of a one-step process. I just have to read poetry and the images. But if you have no personal interest in divination at all, then hopefully my summary of Carl Jung's estimation of the psychological significance of divination gives you some explanation of what is going on for somebody who's doing divination. Rather than pure superstition, it can be seen as a process of greater personal understanding of the unconscious mind, the collective unconscious, and process of making meaning.